Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics. We can finally begin to walk the path that we should have begun 150 or 200 years ago. It's National Indigenous Peoples Day, and the government has a new plan for implementing the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. I'll speak with the Federal Justice Minister, David Lametti. I'm especially troubled by the comments from the public servants. Opposition MPs accuse the government of deliberately denying information in response to their written questions. More on the story from one of those MPs, Conservative Dan Albus. And the race for Ontario Liberal leader enters the summer with four names on the ballot. An interview with one of those hopefuls, MPP Ted Shu. This is Primetime Politics. Hello, I'm Andrew Thompson in for Michael Serapio. Today is National Indigenous Peoples Day and the government has released its plan for the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Today was the government's deadline to explain how it will implement that declaration, which Canada gave full support to in 2016. The plan includes more than 180 measures, and the priorities range from self-determination and culture to natural resources and the environment. I want you to know that not 100% of First Nations are in agreement with the UNDA. Uh, Some are even in disagreement with the UNDRIP itself because it doesn't honor honor the the sovereignty of First Nations, that sovereignty that was required to enter into treaties uh, that settle this country. However, the majority of First Nations have supported this process. As an evolving document and through Canada's obligation to consult and cooperate with Indigenous peoples, the action plan will continue to develop over time. We will continue to participate, advocate for the Métis Nation and ensure that the spirit of the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples is upheld throughout all areas of our work. As an equal partner that intends to continue to participate in this process in a nation-to-nation, government-to-government manner, we are calling on Canada to continue to do the same. Implementation of this action plan will require active leadership and engagement by Indigenous rights holders and all federal ministers, as well as the development of a more systematic approach to aligning Canada's laws with the UN Declaration in consultation and cooperation with Inuit and other Indigenous peoples and other federal ministers. The rights affirmed by the UN Declaration can only be implemented if they are interpreted as legal rights and implemented and enforced accordingly. Our rights are not second-class rights and deserve the same protection as the rights of other Canadians. And for more, I'm joined by the Federal Justice Minister and Attorney General David Lametti. Thanks for making the time tonight, Minister. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Now, the Canadian government became a full supporter of the UN Declaration seven years ago. Parliament passed the UN Declaration Act two years ago. And today, you're now unveiling more than 180 measures across nearly 30 different departments and agencies. So what's the timeline for this phase of the process? Well, this is obviously a longer timeline. We had, according to the legislation that we passed two years ago uh, to the day, uh, we had two years to, de- to co-develop an action plan with Indigenous leadership. We've done that. Those are the 180 measures, 181 measures. We've gone back and forth over the past two years. 
various departments, various ministers and ministries with the varieties of Indigenous leadership across Canada. Great deal of back and forth. Uh, now, obviously, the timeline is longer. What we really have is, is nothing less than a roadmap for reconciliation. Some of the measures will be able to be uh, implemented more quickly. Others are going to take time. But the point, uh, the point is, is that we are either going to uh, consult, cooperate, or co-develop, uh, depending, on, depending on the measure. There will be certain things that we're going to co-develop with Indigenous peoples. That will take more time. There are other cases where we've, we've added an obligation to consult uh, or an obligation to, to cooperate. And again, these are priorities that were identified by Indigenous peoples themselves. So then on that list of the 181 measures, how much of these are new measures versus uh, policies and plans that the government has already had in place over recent years? A fair number of them are new uh, and, and significant. For example, uh, the UN Declaration requires us to have an accountability mechanism that is Indigenous-led. Uh, that's something that, that has never been a part of, of government policy or platform before. It now is. It became that as a result of, of the declaration. And so that's now, again, there's a process that we have, uh, that we have committed ourselves to to, to, to co-develop that, to develop and co-develop that institution. And it will be Indigenous-led. So that's something that is new. There are a number of new things. Uh, a number of them, I guess the best way to put it is we've, we've committed ourselves to a process to walk, uh, to walk a path together without necessarily dictating the outcome. That's colonialism. Colonialism is dictating outcomes. We're engaging in a path with, with Indigenous peoples. Finally, it should have been 150 or 200 years ago. We're engaging to, to walk a path with them and to, and to develop the outcomes together. Now, I do want to ask about measure number one uh, in that list, which is uh, making federal law consistent with uh, the declaration. What is that pro uh, process now going to look like? Well, it's number one for a reason. It's in, uh, it's in Article 5 of the UN Declaration. It's Article 1 in the Action Plan. Uh, every, every law that we pass has to, has to be in conformity with the UN Declaration. I have recently tabled in the House of Commons, uh, no, sorry, in the Senate, uh, a bill uh, that creates a universal non-derogation clause with respect to the rights that are protected under uh, Section 35 of the Constitution. Um, so a, a treaty and, and inherent rights that, that Indigenous peoples have. This will be, uh, this article in the action plan uh, is in addition to that. Uh, we, are now, we are now going to have to make sure that the kinds of, of processes and, and uh, substantive standards that exist in the declaration also become one of the benchmarks for us uh, as we develop law in this country and as we, we uh, in, envisage uh, evolving processes for the passing of those laws. So this will take more time, but this is fundamental. Uh, it, it is more than just a simple check off. Is, is this law in conformity with the principles of the UN Declaration? There's also, a, there's also a, an obligation, I think, uh, to, as I said, walk the path with Indigenous peoples. Okay, and I want to just go a bit deeper then on what the relationship is going to be between the government uh, and Indigenous people on, as this process moves forward. Because in April, uh, as you know, the Assembly of First Nations, they wanted an overhaul after you released the draft plan because they said, the, for one thing, the, con the consultation process was inadequate. And you even acknowledged to the Special Chiefs Assembly that it wasn't a perfect draft plan. So how have you been addressing those AFN concerns over the past two months? 
By working hard. Uh, the, uh, the portfolio holder for the AFN, Regional Chief Terry Tg from British Columbia, will be with us at the announcement today. Uh, he and his team have done a lot of work with us over the last two months. Uh, roughly 80 provisions were added uh, to the action plan in that two-month period. There's been a great deal of back and forth uh, with not only uh, AFN Regional Chief TG, uh, but also other, uh, other leaders within the First Nations community, as well as other Inuit and Métis leaders and leadership groups. Um, so we have, we, we always said that that first draft was a draft, that there would be things missing, and it would, it, it would instigate a flurry of activity. It did. Um, the plan's not perfect. Uh, it, it, it can't be perfect, but it is pretty good. It is a good roadmap moving forward. Like, any, like with any map, we will course correct as we have to. There are procedures there, uh, formal and informal, for reviewing the plan, but also the plan will evolve as we implement it. And if we see gaps, if we see other ideas that come up, uh, we, will, uh, we will move and course correct. And, and I think Indigenous leadership across this country has understood that we're partners now and we will walk together. Okay, in the past few years, there's been some provincial pushback to implementing the declaration. Have you made any progress with those governments on a path forward and on their concerns? Well, this act only applies uh, to federal laws. Um, and, and certainly, uh, we looked at the example of British Columbia, which has passed its own uh, legislation uh, implementing UNDRIP and has its own action plan as well. So we were very much inspired by what happened in BC. We've tried to keep the other provinces informed, the other provinces and territories, of what we're doing. We're hoping that, that this will create a, a virtuous circle of people participating, uh, implementing UNDRIP at the provincial and territorial level. But even if that doesn't happen yet, uh, there, there hopefully will be uh, a, a taking into account, if you will, of UNDRIP at, by provincial legislatures, territorial legislatures. Uh, simply because it exists at the federal level. So we're hoping the principles of UNDRIP will inspire uh, from, from the get-go, even if uh, it isn't necessarily the case that a province or territory has formally adopted UNDRIP. Okay, and just to close with a more specific question on that point uh, about the provinces, at that last AFN assembly, you did discuss potential changes to those 1930 resource transfer agreements with the Prairie provinces. Are they part of this implementation plan? Uh, no, we were, I was answering a question. There was a great deal of frustration in the room because a number of provinces hadn't really engaged uh, with, with uh, Indigenous interlocutors with respect to those questions. Um, I, didn't, I didn't make a commitment at that time. I just, I just acknowledged the frustration. Uh, and, and I think that is something that, that uh, provinces will, will have to uh, discuss with Indigenous peoples moving forward. Okay, Justice Minister David Lametti, I want to thank you again for your time on this. Thank you. And as mentioned, today is National Indigenous Peoples Day. On Parliament Hill, residential school survivors joined the Governor General and Prime Minister to change and re-raise the survivor's flag. I am a survivor of the Ermanskin Indian Residential School in Musquachise, which is located in north central Alberta. My journey there, like many, are stories we've put in the back sack and we did not want to talk about it. So I say to you here today, next time you see someone who you may think is just a drunken Indian who is just downtrodden, remember, this person has a story. Take the time to listen to him.
we always knew, the survivors always knew what happened and they've always talked about it. The only time it came out when the 215 children that were found, they woke up the world and they came alive. And they said it's time to continue. Today we remember the past and see this flag as a symbolic commitment towards a better future that is built on witnessing the truths of survivors. It has taken many years for Canada to acknowledge these truths. And it is due to the courage and determination of survivors, their families, and, their com and our communities that we are here today on Parliament Hill. Now to dispute over information and accountability to Parliament. Conservatives say federal officials are deliberately avoiding direct and detailed answers to official written questions. The House Speaker says he has limited power over what the government discloses. But Anthony Rhoda does want more effort to give MPs better answers. The time may have come for the House to consider how it wishes to deal with this issue of incomplete answers. In the meantime, the chair encourages ministers to find the right words to inspire their officials to invest their time and energy in preparing high-quality responses <coughs> rather than looking for reasons to avoid answering written questions. Ministers and their officials are expected to provide members with the most accurate answers possible to written questions, regardless of their name, reputation, or political affiliation. Written questions and the responses to them are essential parts of the process of accountability. BC Conservative Dan Albus is one of the MPs raising concerns over the past week on this issue. Mr. Albus, good to see you. Thanks for having me. So let's just start with this. You know, we see, Canadians can see how the process for oral questions takes place during question period every day with MPs questioning uh, ministers directly. Take us through how MPs use written questions. Yes, yeah, so an order paper question is quite a different process than question period where you have political parties uh, establishing key themes, establishing their narratives and dueling them out. Uh, and that's, that's what we call a democracy. However, an order paper question is meant to supplement that so that we have a basis of facts. So when a member of parliament writes a question, uh, the public servants that ultimately review and then answer the question try to be factual as possible. Now, these facts are incredibly important to our democracy because if a uh, particular department has spent money or has hired public servants or has let public servants go, those form the basis of the facts that we can then have debates on. And when the order paper questions suddenly receive a political lens at the front, well, then that is a distortion that I think needs to be called out. Okay, so then let's talk about what the crux is of the issue that you and your colleagues have raised. I know you spoke uh, to a question of privilege raised by your colleague, uh, Michelle Rempel-Garner. Take us through what the issue is uh, that, that you're having, especially with the Department of Natural Resources. 
Well, first of all, let me highlight her work. Uh, Michelle Rempel-Garner certainly is a big advocate for transparency coming from this government. Uh, she's served as a government minister in the past, so she knows how these systems work. And she filed an order paper question and then followed up with an access to information request where she actually was able to pull out a series of, of order paper questions, including one that I had on canceled contracts uh, by government agencies and departments. And she actually uh, found the political notes where, uh, in this case, Natural Resources Canada decided they would use a, a language limitation. So essentially, in my order paper question, they decided not to disclose uh, certain contracts for whatever reason. I don't know if it's because they were sensitive or they'd be embarrassed or if they just did not want to uh, behave like a good steward of taxpayer money. But essentially, they decided to not disclose. And in that order paper question, uh, access to information request that Michelle Rempel-Garner did, they actually said specifically, we're worried uh, there is a risk that other departments will follow and be honest and forthright. And then we, by comparison, may risk looking bad because we haven't disclosed as much. But they decided that they would still use this limitation language uh, where essentially they're withholding, uh, they're withholding information, those facts I spoke about earlier, Andrew, that are so fundamental to, towards transparency and proper debate. So by, in effect, doing so, they made a political decision to not allow the public to have that information, to not allow members of parliament to have that information or the press to have that information so we can actually discuss public policy from a basis of fact. So and essentially, it's a very Orwellian uh, term, this language limitation, and I, it's my worry that this kind of thinking will spread to other departments and fundamentally the order paper question will be meaningless because essentially we'd be just asking for press releases written by government communication staff. Okay. now. The government says information was provided to maintain the security of sensitive information. Do you think you're being treated differently as a conservative, as an opposition member, when you're putting these questions to the government now? Well, Natural Resources Canada can say what they want, but it says specifically in the communications bar that they chose to limit specific contracts from even being disclosed. So they actually didn't say hey, there are some contracts that because of national security reasons, we're not going to disclose. In fact, they just chose not to. And again, they actually said the risk here is we will actually uh, stand out for not having submitted like other departments and agencies. And again, let's come back to the reason why we do this. It's because in Canada, we believe in responsible government. That means that members of parliament are able to hold the executive, in this case, the prime minister and his cabinet, for the decisions that they make. Again, if we can't have the basic facts coming from government, if government can apply a communications lens before those facts so they admit things, that is not democratic, that is not transparent, and I don't think it's Canadian. So uh, this is a very harmful thing, I think, for the system of government and its lack of respect for the, for the parliament and its functioning. And I think that we need to go farther than simply just uh, rebuking public servants to do better. This is, as I said, an Orwellian type of thinking that once it invades departments, will neutralize. In fact, allow governments just to simply say, we're exempt from public accountability altogether. That's incredibly dangerous, in my opinion. Okay, uh, so let's finish on this then, because the, the speaker, as you know, did say this is, not, in his view, not a question of privilege for your rights as an MP, but he does say MPs deserve better answers from the government, that he wants ministers to have their officials 
deliver better information. Um, how do you move forward now? What, what, what's, what would be your next uh, step in putting more pressure uh, on the government? Well, this is a disturbing pattern that we are seeing from this government. In fact, the Trudeau government, we have Marco Medicino, who says he didn't find out about uh, the transfer of Paul Bernardo uh, you know, when his staff knew for three months. We have Bill Blair, the minister uh, previous of public safety, saying that he did not receive briefings about Michael Chong. And so when we have where political staff are actually gaming the system behind the scenes to try and keep the government information that they don't want disclosed or, or, or to have discussions about, when they're actually trying to, to stop parliament from being able to complete uh, you know, its functions of holding the government to account for its actions, that's extremely dangerous. I'd hope that the speaker would go farther than what he did. Obviously, he has uh, tradition and previous rulings to go into, but I am that's why I am pulling the alarm, uh, the fire alarm here on this, because if other departments start doing this to other members of parliament, then the, the whole mechanism of order paper questions, and I say this specifically to liberal backbenchers, because if you're not in government, suddenly you will have the same process uh, being, uh, being done to you by other governments that you disagree with. So, you know, I, again, I just want to have a fair process where members of parliament can do their jobs and public servants should not be bypassing parliamentary obligations like order paper questions to make their communication strategies easier. We should be giving people the facts and then letting democracy happen, letting those debates happen in parliament. Okay, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, Conservative MP Dan Albus, thank you once again for your time. Thank you. Ontario Liberals choose their next leader at the end of November. Four hopefuls, though, are getting ready for a summertime of campaigning. There's Mississauga Mayor Bonnie Crombie. There are two sitting MPs, Yasser Nakvi and Nate Erskine-Smith. And then there's my next guest, Ted Shu, MPP for Kingston and the Islands and a former federal MP for Kingston as well. Mr. Shu, good to see you. Well, thanks for having me today. So let's start, I guess, with the most basic question. Why do you want to lead the Ontario Liberal Party? I can help the Ontario Liberal Party win. And I think that it's, uh, it's very important to have somebody who wants to tackle the hard problems that people are facing. What brings me back to politics is uh, hard problems like the cost of living, housing, health care capacity, uh, mental health and addictions, education disruption, the disruption to our economy, and climate change. Uh, I want to work on these tough problems and I want to use my experience to tackle them. And I know that I can help the Ontario Liberal Party uh, win a lot more seats in the next election because I've been able to win tough elections uh, when the party was losing. Right. Now, I guess the obvious question is, how would what you're proposing in your platform and what you want to do differ from what your party has offered uh, Ontario voters in recent elections where the progressive conservatives have won and the liberal parties uh the liberal party has been third party well it's it's more than just the platform and i think it doesn't start with the platform it starts with earning the trust of voters and if you get the trust of voters then they will listen to what you're offering in terms of policy uh, the way that i've been able to win elections in 2011 federally and 2022 provincially when uh, the party uh, was losing is that I was able to connect with voters, uh, voters who lean in different directions, lean towards the NDP or lean towards the 
the conservatives or lean towards the Green Party. I'm able to connect to a lot of different uh, people. And um, that is the first step in, in earning trust. Um, I'm also very careful when I criticize the other parties. I try to be fair and respectful. And uh, even though I'm not so combative, that leads to trust. People believe me when I do criticize the other parties. So I think first it's trust and then it's policy. And if I can just mention a couple of pieces of policy, I've put out a, a vision for housing. One of the things that I want to do is allow for more dense uh, middle market and mixed housing. I want to make sure that we don't follow Mr. Ford's plan, which is to pave over green spaces and, and use that to build more housing. On the economic front, we've been playing defense now uh, since the pandemic, protecting people from inflation and housing and, and the healthcare uh, crisis. Uh, but we can't just play defense, we have to play offense. And so my economic plan is, is about, it's about growth. It's about how to uh, support people to be as productive as possible and how to support innovation and creativity in, uh, and growth in our economy. Okay, now I earlier mentioned your, your other opponents in this race, including uh, most recently, uh, Bonnie Crombie, the mayor of Mississauga. Uh, what's your plan for distinguishing your pitch to your fellow Liberals who are going to be voting versus these other candidates and what they're putting forward? Well, one thing different about me is that I have a seat in the Ontario legislature uh, that the other three candidates, uh, officially registered candidates right now, do not the next leader is going to have to work very closely with the caucus. There is no money for a leader's office. Uh, we're, we don't have official party status. Uh, I have, ex I'm the only one of the four with experience being the third party in the legislature. I have five and a half years of experience doing that. Whoever wins the leadership race is going to have to do the hard work for two and a half years leading a caucus which is in third place in the legislature. I have, I'm the only one with experience in that uh, area. And I have a different background. I think people, you know, the Liberal Party actually got more votes than the NDP last time. So I think that the Liberal brand, it's people want to keep that. They want to keep that uh, equality of opportunity and the balance between fiscal responsibility and social progress. Uh, but they want to see a fresh start. And I represent a fresh start. I have a background that's different from anything that people have seen before. It's I have a background in science. I've worked in science. I've worked in uh, business as well. I managed a business line and I ran a sustainable energy association. And on top of that, I have the political experience that corresponds uh, to the job that we're running for, which is the leader of a party that needs to get out of third place and win as many seats as possible at the next election. And I know you're not in Kingston today, but that is, is your hometown. And I know that you've uh, talked about that as being an important part of, of your political career. Uh, the fact that you're from Kingston is not a small city by any means, but it's certainly smaller than uh, Toronto or Ottawa. And certainly those are really the big battlegrounds uh, in any Ontario election. But um, what do you think being from Kingston for instance, uh, does for you to help uh, distinguish you as a potential leader versus politicians from Toronto or Mississauga or here in Ottawa? Well, I think the Liberal Party needs to be relevant in all parts of Ontario. Uh, it's not very strong now in uh, the, the rural small town in northern Ontario. Kingston and the islands, uh, I have about 100 farms in my riding. So I need to listen to rural concerns. I have one of the most important military bases in Canada, CFB Kingston. 
in my writing. So I need to understand that community. Uh, I've got a mind in my community. So as well as university students, uh, we have a health regional health center. Uh, Kingston's population is quite diverse and the Liberal Party needs to be relevant in so many parts of the province uh, that it uh, hasn't been well connected to uh, for a long time. So that's, that's what I offer. The other thing I would say about Kingston is, uh, you know, your political adversaries in Kingston, you probably have friends in common. So I think you need to be fair and respectful when you're criticizing the other side. That's part of the style that I have, and I think that will help uh, going forward. I think that politics, we, do we need more polarization? Do we need more politicians uh, uh, attacking each other? I think we need politicians to solve problems, uh, to work together, to find common solutions. And I think it's important to criticize the other parties, but it's also important to do it in a fair and respectful way. I think we can make more progress that way. That's, I would say, a characteristic of the Kingston way of doing politics, and I think it will help Ontario. I am determined to win this leadership race and to show uh, that the that I can do politics uh, differently. Okay, Ted Chu, candidate for Ontario Liberal leader. Thanks for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. And that is Primetime Politics for Wednesday. I'm Andrew Thompson. Thanks for watching, and we'll see you next time.